Hebrews 2020, we see Jesus, and this is increment 201. And I want to do an introductory word before we get to our Hebrews exposition in itself. And that is Jesus Christ, our true self. Jesus Christ, our true self. And Father, open our eyes that we may see him indeed and see in Jesus our true self. And we ask this in his name. Amen. We don't know our true self. If we were to encounter our true self, we might shrink in shame before him or her. We might try to hide our embarrassment, our falsity, our inauthenticity. We may avoid contact, eye contact with our true self. And we may even turn and run. To use a biblical metaphor, we may quickly dress ourselves in fig leaves to cover our self-conscious nakedness, our inadequacy, our radical insufficiency. The reason for this is that we have become accustomed to the false self. The self we have become as the sum of excuses for failures, to be true or better, for our total inability to be authentic and real, the self that is reinforced by educators, peers, media, and society in general. But we should really not be ashamed of a total lack of ability, which we can do nothing about. Our total inability is called total inability because we can't do anything about it. What we're really afraid of is not exposure, but the recognition that the only cure for our inherent unreality is the truth that is embodied in Jesus. The only cure for our inherent inability is grace, pure and unadulterated. We become our pure and unadulterated real selves only by pure and unadulterated grace. In the becoming of our true selves, there is the destruction or the deconstruction, if you want to use a more up-to-date metaphor or word. In the becoming of our true selves, there is the deconstruction of the old false self simultaneously. We're afraid of that too. This doesn't take place on a psychoanalyst's couch unless the psychoanalyst is herself a totally authentic person, someone who is their true and genuine self, in which case we would be confronting authenticity 
and would have a similar reaction to that of meeting our own authentic self. Truly authentic therapists, life coaches, rabbis, imams, or pastor teachers are very rare. And so they're left to point to authenticity, to reality, to a reality outside of themselves rather than personally exhibit or express it. As a Christian and as a pastor teacher, and mostly just as a man on a quest for personal authenticity, I'm forced to say, not look at me for an example, but look at Jesus. Reality is Jesus. Even Paul said, we preach not ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves, your servants, your slaves, for Christ's sake. A confrontation with Jesus is a confrontation and a meeting with our true self. Now that's not to say that Jesus is me or that I am Jesus. But it is to say that in Jesus is my true self and yours. Paul's resistless truth and in Paul's epistles he customarily called his addressees saints but it's always understood that they are saints only in Christ Jesus not saints in and of themselves My real self is not outwardly manifested to people in my life. Not often. It is hid with Christ. Hopefully that true self will emerge from time to time and hopefully many times and each time more and more prolonged. It's a weighty burden on spiritual leaders to follow Peter the proto-pastor's advice to be, quote, examples to the flock. Role models to those who hear us, if I may use that hackneyed and often abused term, role model. I found that the only way to bear this burden is to be an example of a seeker of the truth, not a perfect manifestation of it. Otherwise, I'd have fainted under the burden of being an example, and we all probably would. We live in a society of great contradiction today and of cognitive dissonance. On the one hand, 
It wants to disown religion, in quotes, and there is a true and a false religion. On the one hand, today's society wants to disown religion out of hand as Marx's opiate or as Freud's neurotic obsession. Unaware that true religion is the way of self-transcendence by grace. While religion is renounced, so is the concept of forgiveness. Forgiveness is a foreign object in much of society today. If someone who has excelled in a career of acting or sports, for example, has a public moral failure or has failed to meet the standards of a novel and exacting behavioral tyranny, that person is banned from favor and usually is never allowed to recover. A fall from grace, as people call it, and there is a word called fall from grace that's biblical in Galatians 5.4, but a fall from grace to this religion-denying society is usually a permanent fall with no possibility of recovery. I say this as a kind of cognitive dissonance. I'm saying that fancy term cognitive dissonance and that this is a kind of it because the religion which they have disowned may be the very religion which they perceive lacks grace and forgiveness, at least in practice. So their critique may be well-founded. You don't have to look very far to see that there are practitioners of religion, including Christian practitioners, who point out the faults of all around them while not attending to the logjam in their own eye. They sound off about the faults of unbelieving society and its evils without the consciousness of their own fatal flaw of lovelessness. They preach a God who is supposedly love, who gives salvation to some, but then retracts it on the basis of failure or sins committed by the saved. In some cases, they preach a God who elects a number of people to eternal salvation and the glories of heaven, while predestining numberless others to an unimaginably horrible eternity as a punishment for just being born. They judge one moral failure as enough to expel a person from fellowship or service permanently sometimes. In the words of a famous atheist of the 20th century, Christians are the only people who kick each other when they're down. It's a paraphrase, but it's a pretty accurate one. I would argue that it's not only Christians who do this, but I would concede that they, we, do this. People are right to reject such exhibitions of religion, 
so-called, as they are right to reject the so-called religion of those who shout, God is great, while they butcher, maim, and vaporize their fellow human beings. The society that rejects the devotees of religion for their lack of forgiveness is often a society who lacks forgiveness. They resemble the religionists whom they reject. And that's what I mean by the societal cognitive dissonance of our time. We are teaching Hebrews on the level of our own time. When we fail to forgive or when we refuse to forgive, we are working against the advancement of the kingdom of God which comes on in a wave of forgiveness. Read the Lord's Prayer again sometime, as it's called. This includes our failure or refusal to forgive ourselves. A life of kicking ourselves in the conscience for failures that we obsessively keep remembering is not living at all. It's a path that sometimes leads even to suicide. Forgive yourselves as God, for Christ's sake, has forgiven you. God, because of Christ, has forgiven you. And forgive others who have wronged or offended you is a good or maybe even life-saving piece of advice. The cure for this cognitive dissonance and for hypercriticism and other fruits of hypocrisy is confrontation with our own true selves, our own real selves. For what is real is true. What is true is real. That, you say, is an impossibility. My true self does not yet exist if he or she will ever exist. But to that I would answer, your true self and mine is in Jesus. We died when he died, and our real life is hid with Christ in God. There exists, therefore, our true self. Our real self really exists. Our true self truly exists. He or she exists with Christ in God. There exists our true self. He or she exists in Jesus. This is the way that the word of God made flesh in Jesus Christ confronts us anew in the present so-called post-modern era or probably post-postmodern era. He confronts us, encounters us as our true and real self. We are transformed into the image of our true self by being transformed increment by increment from one degree to the next into the image of Jesus whom we see in the mirror of the word. In 2 Corinthians 3.18, it is called the mirror 
of the word because in the mirror we don't see someone else we see ourselves in the mirror of the word the word confronts us afresh through the scriptures We see ourselves in the mirror of the word, the scriptures. We see ourselves. But in this mirror, we don't see our so-called natural selves that stare back at us in a bathroom mirror, but our true selves, which are revealed in the human image of God, which is Christ. The image of the Lord into which we are being conformed when we, quote, leave off all demands and listen, close quote. And when we put aside all other concerns and allow ourselves to be captured by the one needful thing, which is to look unto Jesus, who is not only the source of eternal salvation, the author and perfecter of faith, the forerunner into the region beyond the veil, our great archpriest and mediator, our great shepherd and great God and savior, our great judge and lawgiver and king, but who is also the very image of God into which we are being conformed and will be totally conformed because we have been predestined to be conformed into the image of God's son. Only then, in bodily resurrection, as the sons and daughters of the resurrection, will we, quote, attain, close quote, our totally real and true selves. Only when we, as Paul put it, attain the ex anastasis, the resurrection out from the dead, Philippians 3.11, out from the former untrue self, but now is the time of opportunity to follow the lead of the Christian French philosopher Paul Ricoeur, who said, and I'll quote it again, quote, I leave off all demands and listen. Why do people listen to these messages and other messengers of the word? and not seem to benefit, or not seem to understand, or not seem to so-called so get anything from it. I'll tell you why. Because they don't leave off all other demands and listen. They're occupied with other demands on themselves. And because they've fallen for the sucker's game that says family means everything, the demands of their family take them from listening to the Holy Spirit. I don't say family's not important. I do say family isn't everything. And there are a million other demands on us. But unless we leave off all demands and listen for the still small voice of the Holy Spirit through the word, we will not benefit from that word.
I leave off all demands and listen. James said the same thing, well, at least similarly, put off all the superfluity and pollutedness and receive with meekness the engrafted word. I leave off all demands and listen. This is sage counsel, especially if it's the still small voice of the Holy Spirit that we're listening for. This is the most important demand on us, to be gripped by ultimate concern is true conversion. Those who benefit from these multiple increments of study of Hebrews are not those who casually listen, but those who leave off all demands and listen. Those who, even if for a single hour or less, are willing to be still and know that God is God and that he is in Jesus as Jesus is in him and that Jesus is God and that we are in him and that we died when Jesus died and that our true selves and our real life is hid with him in God. It's this Holy Spirit, also known uniquely in Hebrews as the Spirit of Grace, to whom we listen and for whom we listen. And it is the Lord, the Spirit, who transforms us, increment by increment, He transforms us and not we ourselves. It is God who has made us and not we ourselves. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture, the pasture of our great shepherd. We become our pure and unadulterated real selves by pure and unadulterated grace. To see Jesus is to see the Father. But to see Jesus is also to see the true and real human being. It is to be faced with our own true self. And we should keep this objective before us. Throughout our study of Hebrews 20.20, we see Jesus. Never forget what we're doing. And why we're doing what we're doing when we study Hebrews. We're doing it to see Jesus. And in seeing Jesus, to see ourselves in him and he in us. It is to be transformed from one increment to another into his image. And thus to become who and what we really are. This is what it means to put off the old self and to put on the new self. 
With that introductory word, we're prepared to continue in our exposition of Hebrews, now that we know what we're doing and why we're doing it. And so our next section of this message will be called the annulment of the previous commandment. The annulment, you could say the removal of the previous commandment. I once knew a young Christian woman who, well, she hastily was married to a man to whom she was quite attracted and who presented quite a good exterior. She very quickly found out that this man was not who he said he was. In fact, literally, He was going by another name and another identity. Now the upshot of that and the good news is that that marriage, so-called, was annulled. Legally annulled and made as if it did not happen at all. And she was released from that lie and that deception. So there was an annulment of a previous contract, we could say, and she became free. We're dealing today with the annulment of a previous commandment. And with that annulment, we could say a liberation came forth. But let's look at it specifically through an exegesis of Hebrews 7, starting at verse 18. For on the one hand, there was an annulment of the previous commandment. Now that word annulment is is important. It's A-T-H-E-T-A-T-E-S-I-S in the Greek. Athetesis, or athetesis. And that's the Greek phrase that we're homing in on here. For on the one hand, there was an annulment of the previous commandment. Athetesis mengar genetai pro aguses entoles. The annulment of the previous commandment because it was weak and useless. Verse 19, for the law, we can capitalize that word law if we want because it's referring to the law of Moses in Toto, I think, though a specific aspect of it here. For the law made nothing complete. It can't make anything complete because it's weak and useless to do so. Just as we are weak and useless to transform ourselves into the image of God. On the other hand, he goes on to say in 719, there is the introduction of a better hope through which we draw near to God. The introduction, we could say the debut of a better hope. We'll see that word better is an understatement rhetorically speaking. Here on the one hand then there's the former commandment. 
And on the other, a better hope. A former commandment versus a better hope. The contrast is between the previous commandment, as it's called, and the better hope. It says the previous commandment was annulled and the better hope was brought in or introduced. The implication that the previous commandment did not offer a superior expectation. The implication. The previous commandment did not offer a superior expectation. The implication, again, in fact, the fact of the matter is that the former priesthood established on the basis of genealogical and merely fleshly descent could not guarantee completion for the people of Israel to say nothing of the completion of all people everywhere and at all times. The commandment in question, the fleshly commandment, one thing we know about flesh is it's weak. The fleshly commandment by which the priests of the former order were appointed and ordained dained, was part of the law that came through Moses, part of the general law that came through Moses. Capital L on law there. Now we know from Romans, and thank God we came to Hebrews via Romans, we know from Romans that in itself, quote, the law is holy and the commandment, same word here, entole, is holy and just and good. Romans 7.12. But we also know from Romans that, quote, the law was weak because of the flesh. In Romans 8.3. The word flesh has many meanings in Romans and one of those meanings should be capitalized, flesh as a suprahuman enemy that weakened the law. The law became weak through the flesh, and it was hijacked through sin. In fact, Romans 8.3 talks about the law was weak because of the flesh, the flesh which weakened it, Romans 8.3. The law was also hijacked by sin, Hijacked is a good word, Romans 7.12. And it was hijacked to sin's advantage, capital S-I-N, for sin also, like the flesh and like death, could, could be capitalized in as much as they describe suprahuman enemies of the Christian. The law was also hijacked by sin to sin's advantage and to the great disadvantage of the one who attempts to do the works of the law in search of justification before God. I'll say that again, and this will be in print too, so you can repeat it as many times as you want to yourself. The law was also hijacked by sin to sin's advantage, and to the great disadvantage of the one who attempts to do the works of the law in search of justification before God. And we know from Romans that, quote, by the works of the law, no flesh, now with a small f, no flesh meaning no living human being, will ever be justified. Close quote, Romans 3.20a, conferring with Psalm 143.2, Septuagint 
Consequently, the law, capital L, in itself is holy. But it can't make anyone holy. And the law in its moral aspect and moral commandment and code is just. But it can't justify anyone. It's righteous, but it can't make anyone righteous. It's good, but it can't make anyone good. In fact, the law can only make someone mad. Mad. Meaning angry and wrathful and reactionary who tries to be good by it. For the law produces wrath, says Romans 4.15. Such wrath that men who try to obey it will kill a grace messenger. They're so mad. Through the law comes the consciousness of sin, says Romans 3.20b. Today's message is full of shocking disclosures and shocking statements. Paul said that, Romans 3.20. And again, the law slipped in to multiply the trespass. Whoa, Romans 5.20a, another slap in the face. Not to insult us, but to wake us up. The moral code of the law brings the consciousness of sin and the cultic code or the priestly code of the law and the sacrifices cannot take away that consciousness of sin or produce the cleansing of the conscience. In fact, according to Hebrews 10.3, by the annual sacrifices offered on the Day of Atonement, there's actually a reminder of sins. Remember your sins? No, I haven't. Well, remember them now. The conclusion, the law in both its moral and its sacerdotal aspects brought nothing to completion. The law in its moral code brought no one to justification. The law with its protocol of priests and animal sacrifices brought no one to complete sanctification. Though it purified in a ritual or ceremonial sense only. As Hebrews 9.13-14a says. On the one hand it can rightly be said that the law in its totality is holy and righteous and good. And it is. On the other hand it can rightly be said that the law is weak and useless. As far as offering the hope or any real expectation of righteousness. Galatians 5.5 5 talks about the hope of righteousness. We, by the Spirit, through faith, wait for the hope of righteousness. Paul even presses this argument to the point where the law itself becomes the enemy of people because it was hijacked by sin for sin's purposes and not for God's. This is the essential, often misunderstood argument that Paul presents in Romans 7. Now we're prepared to understand with a little more clarity why the former or previous commandment was annulled. It was set aside or removed to make room for the bringing in or the introduction or the debut of a better hope. A hope that far exceeded the so-called hope or expectation 
put forth by the commandment by which men were made priests in the Levitical order of the law. Here, our rocket analogy also pertains. The rocket analogy hasn't fallen off yet. We could say that this stage of the rocket, which was called the previous commandment, was disengaged and fell away in space so that the introduction of a better hope could gain its passage onward. To cling to that fallen away module of the rocket is to fall away. Here the rocket analogy pertains specifically to that word fall away. In Hebrews 6.4, we'll have to go back and recapture that sometime. The Greek word translated annulled in Hebrews 7.18, again is asthetesis. It means annulment or removal, asthetesis turns out to be an important word in Hebrews because it's deployed in what may be one of the most profound declarations in Hebrews, if not the most significant statement made by the Hebrews author, namely Hebrews 9.26, which says that Christ appeared once at the juncture of the ages for the removal, athetesis, of sin, by the sacrifice of himself. Same word. 7.18 and 9.26. Now in Hebrews 7.18 there is the removal or the annulment of the previous commandment which is the commandment found in the law, the law of Moses, by which the priests of the former order were made priests. There's not just the removal, however, leaving nothing in its place. There's also the bringing in of a better hope, which is the debut of another and different priest. A priest forever appointed and ordained with a divine oath something that did not accompany any of the appointments of priests of the Levitical era. The better hope, of course, is Jesus. It's embodied in him. It is him. He is the realized hope of justification and sanctification and complete redemption, as 1 Corinthians 1.30 puts it, for us. And he is the expectation the sure and certain expectation that all of humanity will be completely redeemed because in him all of humanity has already been reconciled. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself on Calvary's cross, says 2 Corinthians 5.19. And their sins of all the world were expiated, removed. 1 John 2, 1 and 2, Hebrews 9.26, John 1.29. The removal of the previous commandment of the law goes with the removal of sin because the removal of the former commandment was the setting aside of that which could do nothing about sin or about the guilty consciousness of sins, what we call a guilty conscience. 
In fact, in a wider sense, the removal of sin is also the removal of the suprahuman hijacker of the law and the putting off of the body of the flesh, Colossians 2.11, which is the suprahuman agent through which the law was made weak. Jesus was crucified in weakness, 2 Corinthians 13.4. To signify, among other things, the crucifixion of the law, which could bring nothing to completion. And he who was crucified in weakness now lives by the power of God, 2 Corinthians 13, 4b. And that's Paul's way of saying that what the Hebrews author said when he spoke of the power of an indestructible life. Correlate 7.16 of Hebrews with 2 Corinthians 13, 4 by which Jesus is a priest forever and a complete savior. One who is able to save completely those who come to God through him, says Hebrews 7.25. Through him, it says, and not the archpriest of the former annulled order. In Hebrews 7.19a, the law in its totality is indicated. The previous commandment that the teaching shepherd mentions in Hebrews 7.18 is part of the law in toto, the law of Moses in its totality. The commandment regarding the Levitical priesthood and the protocols concerning the sacrifices that they were to offer was annulled or removed because it was impotent and of no use in perfecting those who drew near to God through those sacrifices. This commandment and these protocols were not bad in themselves. They were ordered by God through Moses. It can even be said that they served a beneficial function for they were shadows and types of the good things that have now come in Hebrews 9.11. But they were weak and of no use in bringing the worshipers to completion. Teleose, Hebrews 10.1, the fundamental notion of Hebrews and of 56 of the canonical Psalms for that matter. Teleose, completion, perfection. The previous commandment is a single aspect of the total law of Moses. But the law in its totality also brought nothing to completion. As was said above, as we just said recently, works done in observance of the moral commandments of the law could not result in justification, nor will they ever. So the law could not bring justification. The law itself can even be said to be spiritual. But in the words of Paul, speaking for everyone who tries to find justification through it, but I am carnal. I am of the flesh. I am of the Adamic, Adamic ontology, having been sold as a slave to sin. Romans 7.14 This person, whom Paul is speaking for, and all persons who try to be justified before God by the works of the law, 
come to the point of despair, as is dramatized in Romans 7.24. What a miserable person I am. What a miserable man I am. Who will rescue me from this body lorded over by death, capital D. And in Romans 7.25, we all thank God for the bringing in of a better hope, our Lord Jesus Christ. For he says, speaking to us all, I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's what Paul says. Our Lord is no longer Lord death. Our Lord is the one who is called life himself. I am the way, the truth, and the life. The life now is the Lord of us. Attempts to justify ourselves by the works of the law lead to despair precisely because the law is weak and useless for that purpose. Weak and useless to bring anyone to justification or to any kind of completion or satisfaction. Only the Lord who is our shepherd can make us want for nothing. Only the Lord who is our shepherd can make us want for nothing. Psalm 23.1 And bring us to soul satisfaction, the restoration of our souls, and to completion as authentic worshipers of the true God. The law came by Moses, it's true, in John 1.17. Grace and truth, or what I would call unilateral covenant fidelity, came by Jesus Christ, as we will see more clearly when we see Jesus, the mediator of a new and better and everlasting covenant in chapters 8 and 9. The law in its totality brought nothing to completion. Its ordinances and statutes and protocols for worship brought no worshiper to the place of the worship of the Father in spirit and truth in reality and authenticity. But the law did do something for us. Did us in fact, the law did a great service by pointing to a better hope. That's why the law is a disciplinarian, a schoolmaster. Pointing to a better hope, a great archpriest and a great salvation that he would bring and has now brought to all. We could truly say that the better hope was introduced when God the Father's voice was heard through the torn open heavens. And when he said about one Jesus of Nazareth at his baptism by John, this is my son, my beloved, with whom I am well or completely pleased. Matthew 3.17 this is the Son in whom God has spoken with finality in these last days, in Hebrews 1-2. This is Jesus, the Son of God, our great archpriest, who has passed through the heavens, in Hebrews 4-14. We may share one very precious thing with God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. We, too, can find complete satisfaction and delight in him. In him is our true self. And Father, for that, we are thankful throughout the rest of our lives here and throughout the rest of our everlasting lives 
in your presence. In Jesus' name, amen.